There's a silver lining on the screen watching Cloud this week. Sydney lockdown comes to an end very soon. A 5.8 earthquake hits Melbourne, causing millions of dollars worth of improvement. And there's a bubbly, bouncing new Barrett in the world, and that's a good thing. And there's film and TV stuff happening. This is screen watching. This is not like TV only battle. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Yes, I'm Simon Foster, one half of the screen-watching team. Joining us with bags under his eyes, doing it tough in these first few days, new papa, Dan Barrett. Welcome to the show. Do you want to spread the joy? Look, Simon, here's the thing that people probably need to understand. This is a review-based podcast. As such, we offer our opinions. I will be prefacing every opinion I have, not only on this podcast, but just generally out in the world, starting with the sentence, as a father, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) So strap yourself in. It's going to be a good one. It's a good way to start a sentence, isn't it? As a father, congratulations, mate. Can we get a name? Can you, do you want to, do you want to uh, introduce the world to my future replacement? Oh, look, so <laughs> I did say during the week, because there was a uh, listener to the podcast who like was asking about the child, and I did say yeah. that it would be replacing one of us here on the podcast, and it wouldn't <laughs> necessarily be you, but instead I might just disappear at some stage and replace myself with a infant child. and. I don't think people will really notice the difference. No one will notice the difference at all. Um, Yeah, so Saturday morning, I um, had a child with my wife. It was in the plans. It wasn't a huge surprise to us. We knew it was going to (laughs) happen. Her name, it's uh, Murphy Barrett-Gestia, which is, you know, it's it's a name name. that exists. It's a great name. It's got like so much depth to it. It's got this air of sort of invincibility about it. She's going to be a world leader. Look, I think so. And... Everyone kept on saying Murphy. That's an unusual name. This is because of Murphy Brown, right? Yeah. And the thing is that, no, it's not. So it was suggested to me as a name. Uh, we came across two meanings for it. Uh, it's an Irish name. And the meanings that we came across was that, I forget the like best one, which is something about being a strong leader or something along those sort of lines. It was definitely coming from a tower of strength was the um, idea of that one. And the sure. other definition was potato. And <laughs> when you hear both of those as options, you're like, yeah, sure. She's a strong-willed potato. Yeah. yeah, not named after Murphy Brown, just a you know strong, good name. But also, there's the Murphy Brown connection, and I hadn't really thought about that initially when we started settling on the name. But yeah. it's kind of like when you go to a car lot and you buy John Voight's car. You don't go there sure. to buy John Voight's car, but sometimes once you leave the lot and know that you've got John Voight's car, it just becomes all the sweeter a ride. That's a good story as well. I remember I had always wanted to call my first daughter Madison mm. and we did and we thought it was such a wonderful sort of original kind of name and the first person we met went oh you mean like the mermaid from Splash and I went <laughs> oh of course it was Madison which isn't a bad thing Dale Hannah that's great so yeah so it's um lovely lovely times for you mate and congratulations and uh, hope we can understand exactly what's coming out of your mouth for the next few hours anyway yeah look I think it'll be okay I'm kind of excited to be doing this podcast because this Throughout the week, I've done a number of radio spots because uh, I do a couple of those around the place. And I was doing them like trying to keep nurses around me hushed and just trying to be able to focus on what I was doing. So it's nice to be here and always be watching headquarters to be able to produce this podcast here with you today, Simon. Lovely. Let's play the sting and get on with our reviews. It's. Okay, so we've got a few new movies in cinemas. We've got one on streaming as well, and we've got three very interesting new shows to get through this week. Do you want to kick us off, Dan? Look, so one thing that people have to realise about this podcast is we have done no planning. This this no. is coming completely on the fly. So Even less than usual, really. I'll be honest, just as a bit of background, we didn't even know we'd be recording a podcast this week. We recorded a couple <laughs> of weeks ago some backup episodes just in case I wasn't able to do this podcast. But yeah. it just means that we've got some episodes in the can that we've come droppers like bonus episodes in the next couple of weeks. And that good that's ones, good folks. good stuff, too. I make, we better make sure we use it because that's some, that's some quality podcasting material as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Simon, I'm just going to dump, uh, dump in. Simon, <laughs> I'm just going to jump in and let's start with probably the big title of the week, as at least certainly the biggest like IP of the week. Let's talk about a new series called Star Wars Visions. <laughs> Jedi, 
So Simon, this is a bit of a hard one to quantify in that it's not a regular TV series. It's an anthology of episodes of short animated um, Star Wars cartoons. So okay. think about this in the style of Netflix's Love, uh, Love, Sex and Robots, where you've got sure. a collection of different animators all contributing to a vision of what they think Star Wars can be. So I refer wow. to it as being like Love, Sex and Robots, but maybe the better sort of point to look at is, do you remember the Animatrix? It was an animated oh, feature. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. When it came out in the wake of The Matrix, yep. Yeah, so The Matrix came out, and then when they were doing some promo for the second Matrix film, which was Reloaded, is that right? Mm, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. When that was coming out, they had this animated film, or maybe it came between the second and third films. I forget, but basically it was the opportunity for the Wachowskis to work with a variety of animators. I don't remember how many shorts were in that collection, but basically they said, hey, look, animators, here's the world of The Matrix, have at it. And so what you got mm. was a large collection of animated shorts, which were just various stories told within the Matrix universe. Now, this is the same approach that's been taken. What happened was the folk in charge of Star Wars went to a whole bunch of Japanese animators, uh, nine animation houses, and they said, hey, look, create a Star Wars cartoon. This is probably particularly interesting that they went to Japanese animators for this because yeah, obviously is. Anime, anime is a big thing in the world and people are watching a lot of Japanese animation. So that side of it all makes sense. But think about Star Wars as a bit of IP. Star Wars has all of its roots in Japanese cinema, really. So a mm. huge inspiration for the original Star Wars from George, uh, for George Lucas was the, what's it called? The Lost uh, Fortress? Hidden Fortress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Hidden the Fortress, Kurosawa yeah. film, The Hidden Fortress. Sure. So if you watch The Hidden Fortress, like you will see so many story beats from that film echoed through that 1977 Star Wars movie. So, I mean, just think about like the Jedi, like these are essentially samurais walking around with swords and a lot yeah. of the iconography, the thematic ideas of Star Wars all come from Japan. So it's mm. interesting to take the story that's been created since then, take it back to Japan and see what people will do to bring their own bit of a spin on it. And what you've got is a collection of nine different shorts and I'd say that they vary in quality quite significantly, but they're all yep. kind of interesting. And it's great to see fresh voices being allowed to play in the Star Wars universe in a way that's going to be so mass uh, mass consumed. Like if you think about Star uh, Wars, there's been comics and novelizations so, oh, and yeah. various cartoons over the years. So it's not like there haven't been other voices that have been allowed to play in this world, but they've all been very much under the control of George Lucas for the majority of that. But then also now under Kathleen Kennedy and... You've got all this going on. So it's kind of nice to see a big mass mainstream thing where they're allowed to do that and not just like weird projects off the side. Are they working with established characters? Is this gonna, is this from established Star Wars canon, Star Wars lore, or is there are they introducing new ones along the way? So the way to think about this is that it's all just off canon. Like, do not think about any of these as being related to the Star Wars characters you know. Okay, and also, right. look, I haven't seen every episode of them, but of the five or six that I've seen, they've all largely come from a position where they're just taking the iconography of Star Wars and the idea of it all and creating new mm -hmm. characters and... Um, landscapes to sort of you know position a star wars story within and that's kind of the exciting thing about it as well which is that not only is it new creative voices but they're taking these ideas and really blowing out that star wars galaxy in a really nice way how deep do we need to dig on the fact they're using japanese animation houses that have the the last couple of um star wars titles or is the or is the star wars property itself waning a bit in that marketplace is are they looking to re-establish it or is it um just because that is so popular at the moment look that's a really interesting question so look i'll, I'll admit i don't actually know too much about star wars fandom in japan sure. the two bits that i do sort of know about it is that one i've heard that the star wars films generally don't really play particularly well in a lot of asian countries particularly china it's not really as big as you'd think with other properties. So a Fast and the Furious is just as big in China as like a Star Wars movie. Yeah. But I do, like, from what I roughly understand, in Japan there is a strong affinity for Star Wars. And that's always been the case. Like one of the iconic Star Wars posters is the Japanese one sheet for the first Star Wars movie. Oh, for sure, yeah. Classic. Yeah, so like just thinking about like that as a data point, like it makes sense to me that this is a property that's played well in Japan over the years. And when there was, I was reading a couple of articles about this project and there were filmmakers saying that they've been, that there is a lot of passion for Star Wars in Japan. And I'm just trying to think when I was over there a couple of years ago, I'm sure I saw Star Wars merchandise around the place. So, oh, for sure. Yeah, it yeah would have I, been I feel there, it's yeah. probably as big there as it is here in Australia. 
Okay, so that's called Star Wars Visions. Where do we see it, Dan? Oh, sorry, just a couple of things. So of what I've seen, oh, as yes. I said, like the episodes vary in quality. Uh, you'll see the first episode, which of all of them that I've seen is easily the best one. It's this one called The Duel. And what I think is particularly great about this is that if you think about Star Wars having such strong Japanese origins, this one here is basically doing like Yojimbo but as mm. a Star Wars show. And you watch it and like it feels so sort of dirty, dirty and just like there's so much muck in the way that Yojimbo <laughs> operates as a film. Like you just got to see this on the screen and it's beautifully animated. It's a really great, uh, great short. So if you're just going to watch one of them, just throw in that first one. You're going to have a great time with it. And then don't expect to see anywhere near the quality of the rest sort of match that, particularly since you go straight into episode two. And episode two is really unique in that we've talked about Star Wars. You know what Star Wars is. I know what Star Wars is. We've all got a good idea about it. But the second one is called Tatooine Rhapsody. And it's pretty much making Star Wars into a rock opera. Love it. Okay. But the thing is that Love that it. sounds like such a fun idea. But the band are there, like, playing in front of, uh, like, Jabba the Hutt. Like, you know, the pod <laughs> racing scene in Phantom Menace. It's kind of yeah, like yeah. a big sort of stadium like that with Jabba set up. Oh, but wow. everyone's there to see this band playing. And they're playing with guitars. And, like, it's fun. It's like a weird anachronistic sort of a thing to do with Star Wars. But, like, it just kind of makes for a bit of a rubbish episode. You're just watching it. And, like, the music doesn't really sound <laughs> that good. The yeah. entire vibe of it's just a little bit off. And it doesn't quite make enough sense. So it's fun as an experiment, but boy, it was definitely a bit of a struggle to get through that one. But there will be people who just like latch onto that saying, that was awesome. I want to see more of that. So, you know, it's certainly, it's a grab bag of stuff and what works for some people won't necessarily work for the rest. But the two that I think will be mainstream just assumes be the best are The Duel, which is the first one. And then there's one which I think is episode five called The Ninth Jedi. And that one as well is uh, very rooted, I guess, in Star Wars iconography. And that one is about a young woman that creates a lightsaber in a time where lightsabers haven't been around for some time. Wow. This all sounds really interesting. I was, I had become tired and found tiresome, the, the um, reboots and the rehashes and the, the way the narrative was unfolding on big screen Star Wars. Um, so to see fresh eyes and fresh minds doing something with it on the small screen, um, I got no problem with this whatsoever. So yeah, I'm in. Yeah, look, I don't think this is going to rejuvenate you like to a large degree, but watch that first one. I think you'll have fun with it. Looking forward to it. Star Wars Visions. Oh, I see here it's on Disney+. Plus. Of course it's on Disney+. Plus. They own everything. <laughs> Where else um, would it be? <laughs> as we speak, all episodes there. It's been a big episode dump, has it? Oh, sorry, just getting through a glass of water there. Uh, I could tell. <laughs> all nine episodes there right away. And the episodes vary in length from like about like 12, 13 minutes to about 25 minutes. All righty. I spent 90 minutes watching Mark Wahlberg in a baseball cap this week. The movie is Joe Bell. If you were me, would you rather live in La Grande or New York City? I happen to love La Grande, so... Uh-uh. What does La Grande have? Exactly. Nothing. What does New York City have? It has Broadway and Gaga. Yeah. Oh. Lady Gaga. Don't do it. Don't do what? Listen to me when I say you're beautiful and your way because God makes no mistakes. You're I'm on, on the right track, track, baby. I was born this way. Excuse me, I didn't know you knew the words. Don't hide yourself from regret. Just, Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. All right. We're not doing that again. Simon, before we start, is this one of the four or five movies that have a poster that looks exactly the same? So I'm thinking about Justin Timberlake's Palmer and also the Matt Damon film Stillwater is one of the other offenders. There was a very funny meme a little while back about how uh, Hollywood stars this year are donning baseball caps and saving children all around the world. So, um, yes, this is one of those. Uh, Mark Warburg plays Joe Bell. He's an Oregonian father. That's a terrible phrase. He's from Oregon. Um, and to pay tribute to his gay teenage son, Jaden, he embarks on a... I guess a self-reflective walk across America to speak to citizens about the dangers and the ill effects and the terrible costs of bullying. Um, this film is based on a true story of a young man named Jaden Bell who uh, committed suicide um, when the bullying and the teasing and the razzing of his um, high school mates had become too much and he found no 
um, stability or kind is uh, when he went to his parent, played in the film by Wahlberg and the wonderful Connie Britton. Um, this movie is very much a, an acting showcase for Wahlberg, who gets to play down home and dirty as Joe. Um, the uh, mission that he undertakes to cross America, pushing a, a small trolley, Forrest Gump style. Um, it's interesting because he tries to confront a whole lot of bigots and a, and a series of um, tough-talking sort of hillbilly types when they speak badly of uh, his cause and having a homosexual child. But there's never really this sort of urgent sense of conflict about uh, what he's doing or, or, or where he's taking his his long walk across America. Um, it's really more about him coming to understand his late son. The film uses an interesting device in that um, for the first part for the sort of the first act of the film Jaden's walking next to him now I didn't know the true story upon this which is upon which this was based um and so when it was revealed that Jaden had in fact passed away and this was a lot of the the first act was happening in Joe's mind that sort of caught me a bit by surprise and it was a very effective way of of uh sort of showing how close he became to his son after his son's passing um of course this rip, these sort of horrible events ripple through the community, ripple through friends, um, and of course family, and all of that is up there on the screen. Um, if I didn't quite find it the tearjerker that I'd been led to believe it was, it's probably because of of Wahlberg. Um, he has a certain on-screen personality that I find um, a little bit impenetrable, or a little bit, like, maybe just a little bit too movie star. Um, even when he puts on the, the scruffy beard and the, the sweaty sort of um, uh, plaid shirt and the, and the baseball cap to um, walk across America, he still kind of feels a little bit too much like Marky Mark for me. Um, but that shouldn't detract from what is otherwise a, a beautifully shot and beautifully told story. And Reed Miller as Jaden is, uh, is a real find in this movie. The scenes opposite Wahlberg and in flashback when he's being tormented by the, the high school kids are, are really powerful to watch. He's a fine young actor. When you say that you couldn't stop thinking about Marky Mark through it, is this because he's walking along in his Calvin Klein's for the entire film? There's a little bit of that. Those images are burnt into my brain, Dan. You don't. I was a young man when I first saw Marky Mark and his Calvin Klein's, and that um that hurt. That still hurts. That's and yet, somehow, you still claim to be a staunch heterosexual. I don't know how you achieve that. Staunchly so. I'm deeply closeted, Larry. I'm deeply closeted. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so this is this is a, 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 a fine film without being a, 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 a tremendously noteworthy one. Yeah, fantastic. Simon, I don't know what I want to talk about now. How about we spin the roulette wheel and see where we land? We've got a choice here of the new massively budgeted foundation on Apple TV+, Plus, or we could talk about Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. Which way do we want to go? I'm spinning the wheel. <laughs> Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. When it comes to symbols of the past, there are still a lot of people who ascribe extra natural powers to symbols. Sign of the cross, number 13. Luck symbols, bad luck symbols. At what point, though, do benign symbols become malignant? You're one of the sharpest students I've ever had. Raw intellect can only take you so far. Peter, I knew this was going to be life-threatening. I would have just gone to the library. Professor Langdon? I was expecting Peter. He asked me to let you know about an urgent situation. Hello? You will solve the great mystery. Simon Foster, look, here's the thing with this TV show. We kind of know what it is because we've seen the Dan Brown movies. There was the Tom Hanks and the Da Vinci Code, and then there was the other one that happened that I didn't see that one either. Yeah, what was that so one called? Boring. Angels and Insects or something? Angels, Angels and, and Demons, demons my friend. That. That's yep. what it was called. Yep. This is a TV series that is a prequel to those uh, movies and also, I guess, the book series. It's not really necessarily connected to them, but it takes the major character from that as played in the movies by Tom Hanks. You've got Robert Langdon. And in this, he is played by one Australian, Ashley Zuckerman. And look, I'm going to put it out there. I freaking love Ashley Zuckerman. I think he's fantastic. Wow. He is such a great on-screen presence. And I've been waiting for this big starring role for him in a overseas production. And this is it. And I have to say, I don't know it's going to be a star-making role, but he certainly holds a TV series together pretty well. This is a prequel. It's Robert Langdon set in the US. Uh, the CIA forces him onto a, ta a task force where he uncovers a conspiracy there's symbols everywhere. He's got to work through it. 
the way this all comes about is that Langdon is, he's got this mentor figure played by Eddie, Eddie Izzard. So that's great seeing Eddie wow. Izzard's on screen. Uh, he's got this mentor figure and he gets a phone call out of the blue one day saying, hey, look, I want you to go and talk at the Capitol building. I'm doing a conference there. Come along, I want you as a featured speaker. So he's like told this about three days before he's supposed to be there. But apparently this isn't sort of out of the blue, like this is a regular occurrence with his mentor that he just asks him to do like ridiculous things just constantly. And that there's no sense of politeness or anything. It's just kind of like, hey, I'm doing this. I kind of expect that you'll be there. And so he sort of had his entire relationship is built with the idea that he could just end up at the Capitol building doing a speech like this. So he rocks up at the Capitol building, knocks on the door where he's supposed to be giving the speech, nobody there. He's like, oh. what's going on? So he asks like the local janitor and he's like, hey, janitor, what's going on? Janitor's like, no, nothing scheduled today. And so Robert Langdon scratches his head for a little bit going, well, that's a bit weird. Starts trying to make some phone calls when suddenly there's a, not quite a terrorist incident at the Capitol, Okay, but there's definitely a very strange looking man who turns up yeah. and ends up leaving a, I don't want to call it a gift, a, let's say a memento behind, which is the mentor's hand in a uniquely <gasps> sort of positioned um, thing. It kind of looks a little bit like an Adams Family, um, like uh, not a vase, but like, you know, just like a, a feature on a desk. It's basically yeah. a block yeah. with like a stick and a hand shoved onto the top of it. Anyway, Langdon's looking at it and he sees these symbols that are written on this, like tattooed onto this hand. It's like, wait a second, this is my mentor's hand. And so he gets spun off into this conspiracy. He gets involved with the CIA who gets brought along to work out why this hand was sent to the Capitol building. Off they go. Wow, that is a hell of a start to a TV show, I've got to say. Um, it is. It's exceptionally it... dumb. Like, it is a yeah. dumb, dumb TV show. And it follows in the spirit of all those other dumb TV shows that kind of want to be Indiana Jones, the TV show with a character who's like a university professor who go off and investigate, you know, the supernatural or whatever. Sure. It's yep. very much in that mold of things. And to be fair, like the books, and I think the space off a uh, book by Dan Brown as well, they're all kind of like that. Like it's definitely completely what Probably you've stupid. signed up for. There's no surprise yep. in this whatsoever. And as dumb and as stupid as this was and as great a spirit, like a waste of time, I kind of enjoyed it. I had a bit of there fun with go. it. There you go. I knew that was coming. I don't know if I'm coming back next week for it, but for the hour that I sat down watching this, I kind of had a great time. So, like, my wife's not going to be happy to hear this, but I think I'm coming back to watch it again next week and probably the week after that. So where does this... What does this say about where the Dan Brown um, package is? is <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Where the Dan yeah, Brown... Yeah, so let's talk about Dan Brown's I package. Dan Brown's IP sort of integrity is. Is this the? Does this mean the end of the big screen Dan Brown adventures, or does it mean a kickstart to a new era of Dan Brown adventures? Are we going to see Mr. Zuckerman up on the big screen soon? Look at you, Simon Foster, with all of your old man look. Movies are the place you want to be. TV shows, not Ask so much. Ask the big questions. This is what I do. No, but cinema's what? back, baby. I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think TV's still kind of like the hit place to be. So if you think about what the show is, this is launched on Peacock, which is NBC Universal streaming service. NBC Universal yeah. are trying to put all the resources into Peacock right now. So as far as this is being positioned, this is being positioned as highly valuable IP, which is going to drive people to the service. Okay. Ultimately, though, I kind of think that Dan Brown's time in the sun's kind of maybe waned a little bit, and it's not quite yeah. the big title that it might have been, say, five years ago. So ultimately, it's just kind of come along as just the latest in a long line of movies that have been adapted into TV shows, and they're definitely sort of poorer experiences than the original texts. But this is a new story, and it's doing a different thing with that same character. So where know, do we watch it? Mileage will vary. So in the US, it's NBC Universal's Peacock streaming service. But in Australia, despite the fact that Stan, I thought, was going to be picking up most of the Peacock originals, that is not the case at all. I'm not sure who the distributor is on this one. But in Australia, it's going to be on Paramount Plus, and it is now streaming. You know that very creepy sensation when you go to an Airbnb and maybe, maybe your host is watching you, checking you out, has some secret for getting you there? Well, all of those fears are confronted in the new Shudder film, Superhost. Do I look at you or at the camera? What's up, guys? My name is Teddy. I'm Claire, and welcome to another episode of Superhost. We are staying in the most gorgeous home up in the mountains. So quiet here. This super host uses the name Betty Lou 52 has a nearly spotless record. It's actually Rebecca. Oh, so you're neither Betty nor Lou. <laughs> 
A couple of travel vloggers. A vlogger still a thing? Oh god, that's a horrible word to say. Travel vloggers. I think they're called TikTokers. Yeah, they might be TikTokers now. Maybe this is already out of date, this film. Um, Teddy and Claire, they are heading deep into the woods um, to go to this uh, very spectacular house. Um, they're trying to create viral content to bring back uh, people to their travel vlogging site, Superhost. They're visiting Rebecca, who is herself a Superhost, looking after them as they go deep into the woods in this beautiful cabin. Um, but you know things are up to no good when she starts turning up all around at the most inopportune moments. So what you have here is an Airbnb horror film. There's been a few of these of late, and a lot of them have turned up on this streaming platform, Shudder, which I'm a huge fan of. Horror fans know about Shudder already. Um, Superhost is the latest. Like, Superhost is the latest. Gracie Gillum stars as Rebecca. Now, she plays it very broad and very funny in the opening moments. There's a touch of the um, uh, WandaVisions about her. What's her name, Miss Olsen? Uh, she's terrific in Elizabeth this, Olsen. Gracie Gillum. Elizabeth Olsen is the name I'm looking for. And she's got a, a similar appearance, but she plays it very broad and very funny for the opening moments of this film until things get very stabby. And then it goes very nasty very quickly. Uh, Sarah Canning as Claire and Osric Chow as Teddy uh, are both as absolutely objectionable as you expect travel vloggers to be. And um, you're not too upset when things start to go too wrong for them. The great Barbara Crampton, who, uh, A, you can see a full interview with her on our YouTube channel, um, and B, we all love her from her reanimator days and her years as a... A horror film icon. She has a small but very effective part as Vera, a woman who lost her Airbnb business when Claire and Teddy uh, went to task on her in all their comments. And um, she has a very funny bit part that that makes a lot of this film worthwhile. Um, directed by Brandon Christensen, he's got a knack for um, pulling off the blood and guts, and for also adding a, a, a bit of a spicy bit of humour to it as well. Um, the last 10 minutes get pretty gruesome, so be warned. Uh, it's all done very tongue-in-cheek or knife-in-cheek at one point. It's called Superhost. It's on Shudder. Okay, Simon Foster, it's what I've been building up to in this very episode. I want to talk to you about the new Apple TV Plus series, Foundation. When I was a child at the edge of the galaxy, I heard stories about a man who could forecast the future. But the story remained dark to me until many years later until it became my story. Until it became the only story. Debuting on Apple TV Plus is Foundation, based off the Asmiov books. In the advanced publicity for this, I heard it referred to as Apple TV Plus's attempt to create a series to rival Game of Thrones. This absolutely is not that at all. But Ooh. what is it? Foundation is hard sci-fi, or at least it's as hard as sci-fi as ever to go on TV without alienating every viewer. Foundation is a huge budget, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous looking TV show. It's impossible to take your eyes off it. Foundation is a show with a great cast. It's got Jared Harris, who you'd know from Mad Men or Chernobyl. He's an absolute television goat. He leads the cast, which includes Lee Pace and several other familiar faces. That'll have you with a remote in one hand and a phone open to the IMDb in the other. But Foundation is also one more thing. It's maddening in how many of the choices it makes that are just bad, bad, bad choices. The culmination of those choices just makes the show not a bad show, but it is certainly a little bit dull. The premise of the series is complicated, but to put it as simply as possible, Jared Harris plays a psycho historian. That is to say that he's a guy who's exceptionally smart and he calculates potential outcomes based on data sets available to him. So think of him as a quasi Nate Silver, but instead of working out US election probabilities and sports results, he's interested in the fate of the universe. He has crunched the numbers and reports that the Galactic Empire as they know it will lay ruin within five centuries, maybe sooner. As he says, the Empire will fall and interstellar wars will be endless. 10,000 worlds will be reduced to radioactive cinders. Barbarism will last 30,000 years and the kicker, nothing can prevent it. But he reckons that while it can't be prevented, measures can be taken to shorten this dark period from 30,000 years to a mere 1,000 years. And that's the exact same time period the last 18 months here on Earth have felt like. In order to save the Galactic Empire, which is made up of a mere 6 trillion people, 
They must build an encyclopedia galactica, a treasure trove of data that can give future generations the information they need to rebuild the crumbled society, because there's no better idea than to rebuild something that hasn't worked before. The rulers of the day, a trio of emperors, they're not so hot on the idea. He's kind of suggesting they've done a bit of a shit job at ruling. So there is some talk of imprisoning Jared Harris and his crew of 538ers, but that doesn't happen and plans for the foundation of the future are enacted. Now, again, I'd like to reiterate how gorgeous this show looks. Every special effect, every CGI landscape, all of it is incredible to see. This is an expensive as hell show and I could not take my eyes off it. Like, Simon, it is incredible. You'll just be gobsmacked by this one. But it is a show with problems. At its heart, it's a story that prizes intellect, education, and knowledge, but what's missing from it is spirit and heart. There's no humanity on display, with the exception of a young boy in the opening minutes of the show who risks his life and crosses some land that he shouldn't because the girl says that she'll let him either see or touch her boobs, and there's no more relatable a moment than that, but everything else in the show lacks vibrancy. There's basically just a lot of really dull conversations, and I was really frustrated by the technology on display. It's hard to buy into futuristic sci-fi conceits, where technology kind of feels a bit dumb and not really thought through. There's lots of holograms that are projected in the middle of rooms, where regular screens may provide a far less cool-looking but more satisfactory viewing experience. And why must these dumb shows feature scenes with tens of thousands of people looking up in a city at hologram projections of major news events? Don't they all have iPhones? Well, you've gone deep on this one. Look, I was excited. This has a bit of a... A feeling about it that it's old school event TV and um, probably not, you know, too far removed from the big screen version of June, which is coming out soon. Apple thought they want to get onto the the event TV, the spectacle TV bandwagon in the wake of June, um, or with June coming out, I should say. So Foundation held some appeal for me, but it worries me because I have a lot of problems with... Um, pretentious, overblown, vastly expansive science fiction worlds that aren't very carefully thought out. And that kind of makes me feel, what you've said already kind of makes me feel this could be the way Foundation is going. Look, that's exactly what this is. And I don't want to say that it's not necessarily thought through because I certainly feel that as far as world building goes, it feels like this is actually a thought through world that's kind of, the integrity of it is pretty solid. But you also just look at it and they just make some of the dumb mistakes that you see regularly in sci-fi fantasy shows like this. And you just kind of think, why haven't they learned the mistakes from other shows that have tread similar waters? So this isn't necessarily stuff to do with the overall plotting and development of the worlds and the what would generally be just referred to as world building of the universe at play. Like all of that is considered. And I don't know how much of that comes from the books originally and how much of that is uh, invention of the two sort of key creatives here, which is David S. Goya and also... Uh, Josh Friedman, who's the other guy. And Goya, people would know from a whole bunch of failed TV shows and movies, but he yeah. did really well by writing scripts for like the Dark Knight films, at least the first two. And so he's certainly been trading off that for a while. If you want a point of comparison, he did a TV series not too long ago called Krypton, which if you're not familiar with the show, you know exactly what it is based on that name. It's a story about Superman's ancestors and it's basically the first like 10 minutes of Man of Steel which I believe that Goya had a hand in writing. Uh, it's mm -hmm. essentially that, but just that it turned into a TV show. And that, I have okay. to say, I tried watching it, and I'm a big Superman guy. I could not get through more than about 10 minutes of that show. This is better by a long shot to Krypton, but even so, it is still, it's just dull, which is unfortunate because so much about this works really, really nicely. Okay, Prestige TV there, Foundation, that may struggle to find the audience if what Dan Barrett says is true, and it always is. Sorry, That's on Apple TV+. Plus. Sorry, can I just add this as a data point for people listening and also for the... Um, I, I don't think I included the name of the character that uh, Jared Harris plays in this, but he crunches the data points, so it's probably worth considering. Um, I've only watched the first two episodes. I found it to be dull. I, as I was so bored by the show, I lifted up my phone and got onto Twitter. I just happened across a conversation between Michael Bodie. Uh, who people would know as a TV critic here in Australia. Yes, film, is, yeah. film and TV critic. Uh, and also Craig Matheson, who also does a fair bit of TV reviewing around the place. And the two of them mm. were talking about it. Bodie had the same experience that I did. He found it really dull. Craig has stuck with it to at least episode five. And he said by that point, he's actually found his way into the show. So it might be something where if the show seems appealing to you, definitely stick with it because by episode five, and this has been doled out weekly, so that might make it a little bit easier to stick with it. 
uh, it might be a show that actually does find its way, at least allows you to find a way into it. And I think I might stick around just to see if that happens because there's enough here that gives it merit. Well, you can have your big outer space soap operas. I'm going to stick with pigs. left our heroes, Captain Hogthrob was about to speak. Oh, I wonder how that announcer is. He fell down in Beth's hospital, you know. Actually, I sprained my ankle. Oh, well, take my advice and get your mommy to kiss it. Can we get on with this sketch? Yeah, yeah, good idea. Rob Feld is a reclusive truffle forager. He lives Oh, wait, 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 Simon. I played the wrong clip. What are you thinking? I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever served. You live your life for them, and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. Oh, well spotted, Dan. Thanks for picking that up, mate. Good grab. Uh, he Now, what were we talking about? Yes, Robin Robfeld. He's a reclusive truffle forager living in a cabin deep in the Oregon forest. He hunts for truffles with the help of his prized foraging pig. Now, the pig hasn't got a name, I don't think, but they're very close. Just with a click of his tongue or a chatter of his teeth, Rob can... Um, control the pig. The pig sleeps with him at night. Not in that way. Stop giggling, you children. Um, they've just got a very <laughs> close friend. <laughs> got a very close relationship. Um, but one night, two meth heads steal the pig from Rob. Stay with me. Um, and that sets in motion an odyssey for Rob that takes him deep into the big city of Portland to recover his foraging pig. He's joined by Alex Wolf as Amir. Now, Robin Rob Feld is played by Nicolas Cage in a performance we haven't seen from Nicolas Cage in a long time. If, like a lot of the people who probably listen to this show, um, you only kind of judge Nicolas Cage on the last 10 or 15 years worth of work, you will know him to be generally a very over-the-top, very sort of charismatic but kind of crazy actor who's willing to go to all lengths to tell a story. Imagine the exact opposite of that, and that's what you get with Mr. Feld in this film. He is a man racked by memory and grief and loss, and the stealing of his pig sets in motion a kind of understated Liam Neeson sort of revenge story where he's going to go and get that pig no matter what. Now, it doesn't turn into machine guns and fisticuffs. This is all set in the um, world of high-class, top-tier restaurants in Portland. So you know it's all done with glasses, not guns in hand. Um, But as the story unfolds and you get to learn more about the damage um, that history and that life has has done to Mr. Feld and the sort of sweet and dark performance that Nicolas Cage gives in this movie. You can see why they're talking Oscar for him. Um, it's not what I expected at all. Um, he lives such a bush-bound life that when a yellow Maserati turns up in the background, you are absolutely shocked for a second because you thought this was like a Wild West story, but it's all set in contemporary times. Um See this for Cage performances. See this for the pig who's absolutely adorable and just sort of wallow in the sadness um, that comes with watching Nicolas Cage in Pig. I love this film. I really, really did. Look, I kind of feel that we've all seen stories of man meets pig, man loses pig. I kind of feel like I've seen that before, but I'm very keen to give this one a look. It's gotten such great reviews from around the place and it's really heartening to hear that you're also on board for hashtag Team Pig. And good to see Adam Arkin in there as well. He turns up late in the film as a uh, a key character who's been spoken about um, at length through the movie. And uh, he, when he first comes on screen, he's got sort of this George Clooney-esque type silver look to him, and he's he's very good. Um, all the cast are terrific, uh, none, none more so than Cage. It's really funny to me because I didn't know anything about Adam Arkin being in this movie. When I heard about Nicolas Cage, because he's kind of living in the forest with this pig and doing all this mm-hmm. truffle business, Immediately, the memory that I had was the character that Adam Arkin played in Northern Exposure, where he was a bit of a weird guy who lived out in the woods, and he was considered to be a world-class chef, and he would disappear from the woods of Sicily, Alaska, to go and do some chefing, and then he'd just turn up in the woods every so often. And Well, that's that's got to have something to do with his casting, because that's exactly the character that, that Nicolas Cage plays. Yeah. This can't be a coincidence. Yeah. 
No, it can't be. That's clever. Well, I didn't. I didn't pick up on that. I've never seen an episode of Northern Exposure, so I don't. I didn't get that. But well spotted. You've never seen Northern Exposure. Okay, we're going to have to talk. Can I say talk. that out loud? I shouldn't have said that out loud. We I are going to have to talk, but weeks. before we get to that, we have a middle bit to get to. In typical Simon Foster fashion, he was trying to work out what am I going to do for a middle bit? And he looked yeah. around the room to see what was around him. And he's like, could we do a bit about the lamp? No, there's nothing mm. TV there. And he looked at the blinds. Yeah. He looked at his wife. And then he thought, wait, no, pigs. So yeah. Simon Foster, do you want to explain what this middle bit's about? So when I try to come up with a middle bit, I look at the movies of the week or the TV shows of the week, and I think, what is in there that we can then expand upon in the much-celebrated middle bit? Now, this week, I've gone to the Nicolas Cage film Pig, and I've thought, what are some of the great animal-human matchups on screens, big or small, that we've loved over the years? Now, Straight away, people go to the likes of Clint Eastwood and Clyde in Every Which Way But Loose. So that's the kind of thing we're looking for. I wasn't really looking for the great animal performance. You won't find a Rin Tin Tin in here. You won't find a Lassie. Um, I was thinking more of those performers that um, connected with their on-screen animal co-stars, be it in movies or television. You see where I'm going with this? Look, I do see where you're going with this. So you proposed this to me the other day. And I think that when you proposed this idea, I was in a delivery room waiting for a child to be born. Um, so I thought everything was a great idea at the time. I sat down to create my list, and this is actually a much harder list than I thought to put together. Than That's true. I really went into. Like I thought there are going to be so many great examples of this. But look, here's where I had problems when I started thinking okay. about like my favorite animal performances on screen. So yes. when I think about my favorite animal performances, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I think about animal creatures where I've had a great time watching them, but they're not necessarily real animals. There's a lot that are either these days computer animated or uh, the puppets, or like they were actually like animated characters, and that isn't really in the spirit of what you want to talk about here. So I didn't include any of those, which wipes out a whole bunch of Muppets, which is really unfortunate. <laughs> so I couldn't go through that. And then I thought about some of my favorite animals on screen, and some of them sure. just have sort of sad stories behind them, which have kind of diminished them to a certain degree. So yeah. I, I think to some of the great sort of animal perfor performers, and think about, say, like the, the chimps from Lancelot Link, um, Secret Chimp, and like, as, well, that's kind of, of a fun TV show. Like that can't have been a great production happening behind. You think about movies like Milo and Otis, and there is a reason I don't like talking about Milo and Otis. If you don't know the history of Milo and Otis, read up on it because it'll take it from being a beloved film to just a piece of shit you don't want to know anything about going forward. Very problematic, yeah, very oh, problematic. Yeah, problematic is a polite way to phrase that. That film, <laughs> Simon Foster, that film. Yeah. So anyway, I had to scratch a whole bunch of them out to the point where I was literally left with a really left with a list of three. Okay, let's hear them. And there's technically four in here. Okay. So the ones that immediately came to mind that I was still happy to keep on my list are as follows. Murray the dog. So this is the dog from the TV series Mad About You. Great chemistry. What was great about that dog is that he doesn't really engage with the characters on the show at all. Pretty much every scene where you see Murray, he's just sitting on a couch somewhere. He's just in the background. He's being a dog. And it's like, a dog. Yeah, exactly. It's probably my favorite TV dog purely because like he's treated like a real dog. They don't get him to play around and do anything sort of too zany. There's the yeah. occasional gag where they will get him to do something a bit unusual. So like there's a great episode where Paul and Jamie and that show come home from doing the shopping, I think. They go walking into their kitchen. And if you remember the Mad About You kitchen, it was a pretty smallish kitchen but in the yes. middle was like a little wooden bench. Anyway, they walk in there and you just see Murray sitting up on that wooden bench in the middle of this room doing nothing other than just sort of sitting upright. And you just see <laughs> Paul Reiser looking at him saying, well, this is new. And then that's just like a bit of an opening gag for the show. Yeah. There was that, there was an episode where Murray was on a heese or he was looking for his mother or mm. something. Like occasionally they'd do something with him, but most of the time he was just sitting on the couch and they'd just ask him to move and they'd, you know, do sitcom-y stuff. And so no I one could drop his no one could drop his head onto a cushion like Murray. That more laughs were gotten in, in than any animal in history of him just plonking his head on a cushion any time that those two got up to one of some of their zany antics. Look, absolutely true. Now on the other flip side of the nineties dog on sitcom realm we've got here is a dog who absolutely was there to yuck it up as much as possible. You had Eddie on Frasier, and. What was fun about that is that Frasier, unlike Paul and Jamie and Mad About You, who love Murray and he's a beloved member of the family, Frasier Crane hated, um, sorry, I was about to call him Murray again. Frasier Crane hated Eddie the dog. 
played by a moose and then later by moose's son moose two both of them no longer with us r.i.p oh. and that's always the hard thing when you think about animal performers like outside of maybe the monkey from friends like not many of them really have a long shelf life like they have all deceased no, they've by got this a, point. They've got a strike hard. They've got, to, they've got to have a good agent. They've got to get them work <laughs> when they're hot. And then they're literally out the paddock. It really is a puppy's business. <laughs> it's exactly right. Mm. Keep going. Okay, so I had that one. And then the final one I wanted to round out with is maybe the um, TV animal goats. Um, and obviously I'm not including Mr. Red because Mr. Red, that was a bit of an awkward one where there was animatronics involved in a... Well, not really animatronics as much as pulling strings and putting stuff in his mouth to make his lips move. Yeah, that was a peanut butter, wasn't it? Didn't they used to put peanut butter in his mouth to make it go up and down? I don't think I, they ever pulled the string. Was that ever proven? I've, I've heard a few versions as how they got his mouth to move. Some of them sad, some okay. of them just peanut butter. He was an American saddlebred part Arabian horse called Bamboo Harvester. I had Mr. Red on my list and did a modicum of research. So Bamboo Harvester, who gave him a name? Great I'd name. settle for Mr. Redder. Yeah, great, great name. name. But anyway, right, go for it. The two pets I came up with, dog and cat combo, Tiger and Fluffy from a TV show called The Brady Bunch. Oh, good. A few iconic scenes. Uh, they made it a very memorable splash in the very first episode. But the one that speaks to me most as a person was the episode where the Bradys were building a house of cards, a literal house of cards. <gasps> Murray and Tiger got into a bit of a chase around the house, ran yes. under the table, knocked the cards, they all came crashing down. Why did they pick that one episode when they were building a house of cards to decide to have a chase around the house? I that know. Seemed very, that seemed very poor on their part. Exactly. Like, there's a reason why you probably haven't seen Tiger and Fluffy after that episode. Exactly right. Mm. All right, is that your list? Yeah. Oh, sorry, I should probably actually yeah. say why Tiger and Fluffy's appearance in the show was so near and dear to me, which was right, that... Do tell. Can I tell you a story about my past, Simon? Let's go for it. That's what podcasting is all about. In the 90s, I'd be doing my assignments, my um, high school studies, and I'd have the radio on in the background. Now, invariably, I'd have something that's due on a Monday morning, and I would have started it on Sunday evening at about five o'clock. So I used to listen to a lot of Sunday night radio. And Sunday night, back in the mid to late 90s, had a, t had a radio show on it called Creatures of the Spotlight which was a beloved program of mine. It was film reviews and they occasionally talk about the TV stuff and as well, but primarily movie reviews. And because Love this it. is talking about like say circa 95 through 98-ish to my memory, uh, there'd be like the sort of movies that were really sort of near and dear to me as I grew up and became a film enthusiast as well as enjoying all things screen. They used to do a weekly quiz and so there'd be 20 questions and callers would come through and whoever makes it through to question 20 would win the prize. I jumped in really early in. The trick with that was not to get in there early. You want to get there towards the end because that way you win. Otherwise, you answer a bunch of questions and never quite make it through. The theme was the Brady Bunch because the Brady Bunch, one of the Brady Bunch movies that just come out. So they had Brady Bunch questions, 20 questions about the Brady Bunch. I blitzed 17 of them, Simon. <gasps> I got what? through. That is an incredible story. A slew of them. And then I screwed up right at the end and didn't quite make it through. <sighs> But the question that can seems you remember, to impress... Can you, remember what, can you remember what you stumbled on? Not really. Uh, it's a long time ago. You can only remember so much Brady Bunch that. trivia about yourself. Sure. But <laughs> one of the questions that really impressed people that I was able to name them was being able to name Tiger and Fluffy uh, based off that episode with the cards. Good for you. That is a lovely story. Mm. <clears throat> Simon, your list. Okay. What have you got? Okay, so of the films, you know, I've mentioned Every Which Way But Loose and its sequel Any Which Way You Can. I would also mention... Uh, Sam, played by Abby the German Shepherd and Will Smith in I Am Legend. That was a beautiful yeah. on-screen pairing. They had great chemistry. You can't talk animals in movies without talking wolves. And, of course, the best of those is Dances with Wolves with John Dunbar and Two Socks. But you also have to mention White Fang with Ethan Hawke and a wolf named Jed playing White Fang. Um, See, both those are really good examples. Because on my list, like the first thing I actually thought of when you proposed this was the recent yeah. film Call of the Wild which is this amazingly oh. great um, family film about a dog who's a bit of a troublesome dog that gets pushed out into like the Arctic and ends yep. up sort of finding his true dog self as he sort of becomes a working dog on sleds and then goes on a voyage with Harrison Ford. Um, yes, he does. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. Yeah, like that film, like it hit me in a big way. I was a bit sort of teary by the end. Like it was a good one. But CG there dog was... from the beginning through the yes. end. Yes. Yeah. CG dog didn't have I had and a problem. A with bit that. too CG for my liking. <laughs> oh, was it ever, yes. Mm. Um 
Now, there's a 2017 film called Megan Levy. Kate Mara yeah. stars as a U.S. Marine corporal who uh, was a military police canine handler. She did two deployments in Iraq with this dog called Rex. And the pairing of those two on screen, Kate Mara and this beautiful German Shepherd, is makes for a great film. Not a lot of people saw that. I think that went straight to the, uh, the home entertainment platforms here in Australia. But if you can see Megan Levy... Uh, with Kate Mara. It's a wonderful film. My, um, me- my memory of the poster for that one has her dressed very much like the three men wearing baseball caps we discussed at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> There's a little bit of that in it as well, yes. Um, we also have to mention, of course, Judy Garland and Toto in The Wizard of Oz. We have to mention uh, the cat. Orangey was the cat's name in real life from Breakfast at Tiffany's. It actually won a Patsy Award from the American Humane Association for his work in the film. Um a certain talking pig movie, James Cromwell as Farmer Hoggett and Babe, which was in fact 10 pigs because uh, pigs, well, they're not stupid's a hard word, but they can't really be trained to do too many things. They're not that reliable. So they had to get different pigs to do each sort of different movement, um, but all cut together seamlessly on screen. Worth and noting that a... pigs are one of the smarter animals, probably not quite yeah, sort of dog smart, right. but they're suddenly right up there. Yeah, that's exactly right. But also very willful. So getting mm. them to do things on command can be tough. They're very sort of instinctive. Um, uh, well, and just, there's a movie sorry, can, I give, can I give pig facts here? Uh, basically, <laughs> and think about this next time you're hoeing into some ham or pork. Uh, basically, yeah. your pig is the sort of mental and emotional maturity of a six-year-old child. Yeah. 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 It's good to know. Mm. And upon um, hearing that, I stopped eating pig. But, you know, that's my oh, own choice. I had pig goat pork yesterday. Now it's a horrible person. Go on. Uh, Don Johnson and a dog starred in A Boy and His Dog back in the mid-70s. It was a post-apocalyptic film and uh, much in the same way that Mel Gibson shared the screen with a uh, blue healer in Mad Max 2. In A Boy and His Dog, Don Johnson shared the screen with this wonderful breed. I can't remember what it was, but it's all set in this ravaged United States and they live in this barren, sandy land. Um, TV-wise, BJ and the Bear. Come on, BJ and the Bear. Oh, yeah. One of the great pairings of animal humans on the small screen uh the two uh other bear shows grizzly adams and gentle ben um we can't talk about animals on television without mentioning our very own skippy alongside sunny in skippy the bush kangaroo um and we've mentioned mr red previously i am going to mention fred the cockatoo from the crime drama beretta now look it up kids but Beretta starred the um, since shamed Robert Blake as a, uh, a sort of a, uh, a uh, as a sort of a big city uh, PI and he always had this pet cockatoo on his shoulder which was called Fred when it was brought onto the series it could only speak Chinese they had to teach the cockatoo to not speak Chinese but to speak English just for this drama, which seems odd. Couldn't they just get a cockatoo that spoke English to start with and save themselves trouble? But hey, that's television <laughs> in the 70s. Cocaine, what'll it do to you? Um, and one other point I want to make, a northern Inuit dog named Zuni played the dire wolf lady in the first couple of episodes of Game of Thrones. Um, when it left the series, it was going to go back to the dog home. It didn't have any sort of a place to be taken. So the wonderful Sophie Turner, who played Sansa Stark in that series, d- adopted the dog and still lives with this beautiful creature today. So that's a happy story to end out this middle bit. Look, that's pretty nice. Hey, sorry, yeah, I just thought of another great. pairing I'd like to mention here. What about sure. Ripley and Jonesy from the Alien movies? Ah, uh, see... This is good stuff. This is why we do a middle bit. That's a great yeah. pairing. Hey, just a thought. Over, th- over two movies or nearly two and a bit movies. Yeah. Uh, a thought that I had uh, was mm-hmm. uh, some dog, I like some, well, not really dogs, but animal actors. And probably the greatest animal actor was Bart the Bear. Yes. Yeah. Now, yes, people don't Bart know the Bart Bear. the Bear. I just loaded up his filmography here. Uh, Bart the Bear uh, appeared. The Great pro- Outdoors. Actually, yeah. List off what can you remember Bart the Bear being in? Uh, the Great Outdoors, the Jean-Jacques Renaud film, The Bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in that one uh, where the plane crashed with Alec Baldwin and uh, Anthony Hopkins. The Edge, yeah, um, that's, that's a good one. Oh, boy, he was in... Oh, that's four. What else did I hit? There must have been others. Okay, so you can also find him in the movies. Uh, this isn't all of them, but just a couple of them. 12 Monkeys, he's in there. Of course. Legends yep. of the Fall, On Deadly Ground. He's in Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. Uh, he's in White Fang, which you mentioned a little while ago. I did, yes. Uh, Benji the Hunted, he appears in that. Uh, yeah. Just a whole bunch of things. Uh, most of the time he's credited as Bear, which is probably not the most sort of imaginative. 
And I would suggest that he's probably the only bear performer that's ever given away an award at the Academy Awards. That's very true. He was on stage, um, I think, around the time that The Bear came out, the Jean-Jacques Renaud film in the the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, just one of the great animal actors of all time, Bart the Bear. If you've seen a bear on screen in the last 20 years, it's probably him. Yeah, Uh, and lived through the age of 23, which, to be honest, I don't really know if that's a good age for a bear or not. Me neither. Yeah. (laughs) Don't know. You know, something's to find out. that was... and all of that was inspired by Nicolas Cage in a pig. See, this is why the middle bit is such a popular part of the show. As you well know, we end every podcast with a look at the week ahead. We look at the new and returning TV shows. We look at the new and returning movies and also a little bit of cinema business as well. Simon Foster, do you want to kick us off with the new and returning TV series? There's a couple here that I'm really quite excited by. I'm excited about the problem with Jon Stewart. This is the uh, comic comic commentator's return to the small screen. On Thursday the 30th of this month, he'll be turning up on Apple TV. Uh, not a moment too soon. His kind of comedy and commentary is exactly what we need right now. You've got to be looking forward to this. Were you always a Jon Stewart fan? Look, huge Jon Stewart fan, and that's from yep. before The Daily Show. Uh, I was really quite taken with him from... Weirdly, like we never really got his like MTV stuff here in Australia, and that was pretty no. standard sort of VJing sort of uh, business. But just from appearances on things like the Larry Sanders show and various other like appearances he did around the show, he was uh, around the place. He just kind of became one of these guys who was just on my radar. So when he cropped up mm-hmm. and became one of the funniest people on television, like that just kind of felt like it was, you know, just part of the John Stewart story from the way I was following just him. Just right for him. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Midnight Mass is coming to Netflix from September 24. That should be on uh, your small screens as you listen to this podcast. Seven episodes from director Mike Flanagan, who had a huge hit a couple of years back with The House. What was it called? The Haunting of Hill House? Yeah. Which I loved. So that's important. Um, Uh, Also, he was the director behind Doctor Sleep, which I thought was a far better movie than I really expected it to be. Absolutely. And if you do get a chance, and while we're going down the... A deep dive with Mike Flanagan. His first movie was a little indie called Absentia, which is one of the mm. most terrifying small screen films, sort of, sorry, small budgeted films I've ever seen. So uh, it's called Absentia, and I think it's available on a few of the streaming platforms, but it's a great, great sort of nerve jangler. Debuting as well this week, Simon, we've got Fires, which is a new ABC TV drama. It's a six-parter from Tony Ayres. What's probably worth considering here is that Australian viewers, particularly those of us in New South Wales, would be very familiar with some of the horrors of the recent bushfires there at the beginning of 2020. This is a look at the fireys who were involved in, you know, mm. keeping Australia safe. Too soon? There's been a bit of coverage through the week that this kind of drama is uh, too soon after the event, as tragic and horrible as it was. Um, yay or nay? I mean, honestly, I kind of feel that, yes, maybe. And look, mm. I don't personally know anyone who is involved in losing their homes uh, through that. Like... I think everyone around Sydney kind of knew somebody who knew somebody. So there was definitely something in the air where there was such a sense of grief for the couple of weeks that we saw those massive fires come through here. Uh, But at the same time as well, like the skies were just filled with so much um, thick smoke that me as a former asthmatic, um, I found that I still apparently have some asthma issues because my breathing for a couple of weeks was completely shot. Like I had a real existential crisis as I thought about the state of the climate emergency based with what I was just seeing in the black skies that surrounded us for weeks and weeks there. Like it was a really It'll profound be- time for me. Yeah, it was across the board. It was an extraordinary period. It'll be interesting to see how they handle the drama, the human drama in this TV series. I haven't seen any of the episodes yet, um, but there's a lot of quality people involved with it. So you're hoping they give it a, uh, they handle it with a, a degree of sensitivity and I'm, you know, I'm sure they will. Um, and we have a franchise extension also this week. Gee, Hawaii's in the news. First you've got your, your Doogie Kamehaloha and then you've got NCIS. What do you know about this? So I've seen the first episode of this one. Uh, this debuted mm-hmm. during the week on CBS, but we actually got it here uh, within just the, about an hour or two of the US launch. It's going to be streaming here on Paramount+. Plus which is probably worth noting for NCIS fans because Channel 10 has traditionally been the home of the NCIS franchise, but no longer. This is clearly Channel 10 investing heavily in their Paramount Plus uh, streaming platform. So if you want to check it out, do so there. Look, I love TV shows set in Hawaii, so I definitely gave this one a look. I'm not a huge fan of the NCIS formula, and I'd say this one sort of plays with it a little bit more than most in that with NCIS, usually you've got a much older like male lead 
Uh, so it's usually a TV actor of considerable note. So think about like Mark Harmon and Scott Bakula, those like your two uh, main ones sort of considered there. Like both of them mm-hmm. have such extensive, rich TV histories. And this one here, you've got an actress who um, she's known for something. I don't really quite know her and I've forgotten her name off the top of my head. So I apologize and I don't have notes in front of me, but she just doesn't have the gravity and the um, TV, like she's not a TV anchor in the way that those other okay. actors are. Um, and there's definitely something missing from in regards to that. But it very much follows NCIS. Um, it follows the rule book. It's quippy puns and jokes and uh, playful language and computer screens that are filled with a lot of code in the background, even though that's looking at someone's Facebook profile. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of overkill. It's a lot of bombast for not really a whole lot of reward. But people love the franchise. You know, if you're into it, you'll probably give this one a go and probably like it more than you expect. Do they lean into the Hawaii locations? Are there tikis and pineapples everywhere? Yeah, look, so there are tikis and pineapples everywhere. And as everyone's kind of casually dressed and you get a sort of vibe of Hawaii around it. And look, this might just be a COVID thing and maybe it's unfair to like put too much of a, um, you know, a, a dampener on it all. But you kind of think it's set in Hawaii, you kind of want them on the beach. And there's certainly mm-hmm. scenes where they go to the beach but those scenes where they're at the beach and you see people in swimsuits and stuff behind them, it's all blue screen. And no. I don't really understand exactly what they're doing there. And you that think seems like an odd choice. my thought initially was, well, you know, COVID restrictions, like maybe that's just something that I have to do. But think about sure. Doogie Kamaloha. They've got people on the beach there. Like that seemed like something which is perfectly feasible within a COVID production environment. And you mm. can't necessarily think that Doogie Kamaloha MD necessarily has a bigger budget than NCIS Hawaii, one of the biggest franchise shows on television. Doogie gets it done. That's what they say. That's why she's Doogie. Yeah, well, I guess so. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> hey, just a quick note I want to drop in here because you and I were talking yes. about it uh, during the week. You were asking when La Brea is debuting over the next week or two. And Very I said, excited. let me look it up. It doesn't debut till 2022 in Australia, despite the fact That's it was filmed point. in Melbourne and there's suddenly local interest around this one. It was part of Channel 9's announcement about their 2022 schedule, and La Brea was one of the titles discussed as coming in 2022. So, being this delayed a couple sort, of this months. This is the one that's sort of this is the sort of uh, land of the lost type reboot where a big sinkhole takes out a big chunk of Los Angeles, and a group of people are thrown into this underground world, which is what I gather from the trailer. Absolutely. So, La Brea is a suburb of Los Angeles, the city. If people know in movies, having seen the La Brea tar pits. And that's yep. those tar pits with the dinosaur statues all the way around it. You've certainly mm. seen those in movies before. Uh, so yeah, basically sure. there's a family driving past them in the opening um, sequence of the show and suddenly a massive sinkhole opens up underneath them. I think Natalie Z from Banshee is one of the uh, cast members. Oh no, she wasn't in Banshee. She was in Justified. Uh, she's, I think, the mother of that family. Not 100% sure. Okay. Look it up on the IMDb, kids. Uh, but a sinkhole opens up. Yeah. And they all fall through there into a lost land of the lost sort of a tropical island environment. So I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. But gee, 2022, surely this is going to pop up on, you know, YouTube or... Every, every yeah, you know, dodgy streaming service, known to man. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly right. Yeah. All right. Movies debuting on streaming in the weeks ahead. Uh, in the week ahead, Britney versus Spears at September 28 on Netflix. This is another, but by all accounts, quite intimate and thorough portrait of the pop star's trajectory from girl next tr- next door to a woman trapped by fame and her own legal status. Uh, and also Free Guy is being fast-tracked to cinemas. Um, I don't usually put the debut of theatrical titles on streamers here in this section, but I loved Free Guy. So uh, fast- Sorry, just, just to correct what you said, sorry, to correct what you said then, you said it's being fast-tracked to cinemas. Oh. It's being fast-tracked to Disney Plus. From Because the interesting thing about Free Guy in Australia is that we didn't get a cinema release in the two biggest cinema markets in no. Australia, being Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, so some people listening to this in Australia have seen the movie because it did play in cinemas. Around the but trip. for the majority of us in Australia, we didn't get the chance to see it. So they are fast-tracking it here. But Free Guy isn't being fast-tracked everywhere. It's just a few small markets like Australia that That's exactly that right. And um, across all platforms as well. So it's going to be on Disney Plus as well as 4K DVD and Blu-ray and the whole lot for you old fossils like me who want to own a hard physical media copy of it. God bless you. Disney Plus for doing that. Um, big Indeed. screen. Uh, just, sorry, just on that topic as well. Yes. Uh, not physical media, because as if. <laughs> Shang-Chi, which didn't get a cinema release here in Sydney and Melbourne, yeah. but certainly around the world and, you know, other places in Australia got it. 
Uh, that's coming to Disney Plus sometime next month. So oh, wow. keep an eye for that. Yeah, that's going to just not even turn up in cinemas here in Sydney and and probably well, Melbourne would have got a bit of it, but that's that's a huge. No, chunk no, they of, didn't get Shang Chi. Cinemas were closed in Melbourne. No, that's a huge chunk of of the Australian box office dollar that that film didn't get. That's amazing. So coming to Disney, but we're Plus, a relatively small market. Like we're not. You know, no, no one's necessarily buying a car based off the Australian box office takings. No, not for the last two years, they haven't. Um, in some big screen watching around the country, I just want to mention very quickly, at the Deck Chair Cinema in Darwin next Thursday the 30th, there's a, an Australian cyber thriller called Lone Wolf, stars Hugo Weaving and the wonderful Tilda Cobbin Hervey. Um, it's all done with CCTVs and uh, camera vision and the very smaller, more sort of uh, niche technology that you don't expect would go into making a movie uh, directed by Jonathan Ogilvie. It's called Lone Wolf. Um, going into Darwin first and then sort of dripping out around the country over the next couple of months. And at the Mercury Cinema in Adelaide, also next Thursday the 30th at 7pm, the Cinematheque is screening Ron Shelton's White Men Can't Jump, a classic from the early 90s with Woody Harrelson and tax dodger Wesley Snipes. I've never seen it and always wanted to. So obviously I'll be jumping on the non-existent planes to get down to Adelaide to check this one out and get stopped at the water. (laughs) That's a terrific film. It would be great to see it on the big screen again. What's happened this week in history, Dan Barrett? Now, just continuing the theme of the last couple of weeks, September obviously marks the month where a lot of US network shows have come back. So some of the biggest TV shows in history will be celebrating anniversaries within these couple of weeks. These aren't necessarily like, you know, the big anniversaries, but things to take note of. September 26, 1969, the aforementioned The Brady Bunch premiered on the ABC network in the US. September 28, 2015, we saw Trevor Noah take over from the aforementioned Jon Stewart from the aforementioned The Daily Show. I have to say, people, none of this planned, but in the same spirit of Dr. Malcolm talking about the chaos theory in the Jurassic Park movies, sometimes nature finds a way. September 29, 1982, Cheers, sorry, the greatest TV show of all time, Cheers, premiered on NBC in the US with Ted Danson and one Shelley Long, America's favorite star, Shelley Long. September 30, 1955, we saw American actor and cultural icon Jimmy Dean killed in a car crash age 24. You said that far too happily. Couldn't figure that out. Uh, Birthdays this week. I love car crashes. (laughs) birthday this week coming up september 25 michael douglas was born in new brunswick new jersey get this on the same day in 1969 Catherine zeta jones the man that michael douglas would marry was born in swansea wales isn't that an amazing coincidence that's both of them born on the same day so that's a lovely lovely and very romantic september 26 not not quite the same day no 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 not by a long shot he's done very well for himself michael douglas september 26 1948 olivia newton john was born in cambridge england september 27 that nut job gwyneth paltrow was born in la california that was in 1972 and everyone's Mid-90s crush, Janine Garofalo was born in Newton, New Jersey on September 28, 1964. Happy birthday, Janine. Simon Foster, it is that time of the podcast where I announced that I literally got an email 30 seconds ago from the team at Amazon telling me I've got screeners ready to watch for I Know What You Did Last Summer, the TV show. Wow. And with that news, I have to end the podcast. We've got to get out of here. Wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up getting out of here folks thank you very much for listening to screen watching i'm dan barrett on twitter you can find me at the dan barrett start your day with my free newsletter always be watching at alwayswebewatching.com it's got the big stories of tv streaming and film and on friday has got the always be streaming newsletter it recounts the big stories that launched that week simon go i'm on the twitter at simon r foster one read my words over at screen space that's screen faster hyphen, faster faster screen hyphen space.net you can visit the screen watching <laughs> facebook page at screen watching podcast and check out the screen watching youtube channel where there's uncut interviews and fresh trailers every week and if you like this podcast, follow the Screen Watching podcast via your favourite podcast app. Load it up now and hit the follow button. Full stop. All right, buddy. Great show. Congratulations once again on the new family member. And let's off to watch, what's it called? I know what you did last summer. Indeed. I should spend time with my new daughter, but, you know. No, priorities, mate. 90s horror slasher film retreads await. <laughs> Folks, we will catch you next week. 